welcome to Pivot Points. This is the podcast about the pivotal moments that have shaped our academic, professional and personal lives. I'm Femke, your Head of Communications at Wolfson College, and I'm all about creating ways for you to share your stories like this podcast. This month's episode is a conversation with Katja Kowalczuk, an energetic scholar studying Byzantine legends. Katya has moved countries countless times, most recently joining us here in Oxford from Ukraine as an at-risk scholar. She first studied abroad in Budapest, so we kick off our conversation talking about her first experience of living and studying in a different country. Uh, yeah, it was like quite a long time ago. I'm not going to specify and go into <laughs> figures, you know, but it was like still very much post-Soviet Ukraine, you know, and it was like really exceptional that people could go uh, to study abroad. You know, now it's quite common, you know, and basically whoever wants, you know, and even if you sort of don't have money, you know, like you always can apply for some scholarships or something, but at that time it was exceptional. So I got accepted to the um, master in medieval studies uh, program in Budapest and the, at the Central European University. And uh, uh, basically coming from the background of classics and moving to a new area and also moving uh, to a different country. And of course, like the everything was so different. But I, why, I d- why yeah. did you want to move to a new area of study? Uh, you know, like I finished my uh, classics. It, it was diploma. It was five years. So it's, we didn't have like bachelor and master at that mm. time, you know. So uh, I wanted to do like what we call it's a kind of equivalent of PhD, you know, but it's called differently, you know, like in Ukraine. Yeah. So I wanted to do that, you know, and I actually I did see myself just like sitting with books, you know, and doing research, you know, so that was kind of my vision of my life, which, mm. um, yeah. Anyway, so I applied that I was accepted for a program like the PG program in Ukraine, but then I came across uh, a brochure you know, in one of the libraries about this Central European University, and I just uh, flicked through the pages and I saw the program in medieval studies and my heart started pumping, you know, and I was like, I melted, you know, and just like reading about it, you know, yeah, you know, (laughs) and I just knew like that's something that I really want to do, you know, yeah, and, uh, you know, like some things, I I mean, like in, well, different people, people are like, people take decisions in different ways, you know, but for me, uh, some of the best decisions that I happened to make were like, they were kind of directions from different sources you know so I can kind of if it's confirmed from another source you know another thing I'm just like yeah that must be something for Mm me and there was like an older professor in Lviv where I I was basically living at that time I did Mm -hmm. the university there although I'm not from there and uh, he was blind and I was helping him like to do some commentary on the Vita Caroli Magni. He was like making a translation of this medieval Western Carolingian source, like Latin uh, text into Ukrainian. And uh, his wife helped him. And of course, like because he was very uh, advanced in years, as we would say, and uh, also blind. Mm-hmm. So he needed help. So I was helping him and he mm-hmm. got like... Um, the, this is um, in Budapest. Uh, no, this is in Viv. So this is like okay. another. So like one time, one kind of direction or clue was this brochure, but also like it was sim- almost simultaneous that he uh, received uh, some information from Budapest asking like him to recommend somebody for their program, also from right. the medieval studies. Yeah. 
And of course, like the first thing he thought or somebody he thought about was me, you know. So I basically like got in a way like direction for this Budapest from two sources, you know. And yeah, I think it was very special, you know, also like how it started. It was like extremely hard, you know, excruciatingly hard, you know, because it was like the first time I did something in English and my English mm. was kind of very weak, you know, and everything. And your first time living abroad. Yeah, abroad, you know, and also like the level of scholarship was, of course, way higher. It was like top international uh, scholars and professors and everything. Mm. And I'm like coming from the medieval, you know, <laughs> <laughs> level of scholarship from Ukraine, you know. So like, yeah, so I basically was deprived of sleep, you know, and everything. Mm-hmm. So it was like, uh, but... It was absolutely fascinating. I, mean, I think I had such a, an enjoyment to what I was doing for the first time in my life, you know, mm-hmm. that I thought, yeah, this is... And then I stayed kind of for the PhD, you know, like, but I moved to Byzantine studies from the Western medieval studies because mm-hmm. I did my master in Carolingians, you know, like, and then I kind of migrated again. But mm-hmm. I think this is the way I live because I migrate all the time. All the time. You know? <laughs> so something that you mentioned yeah. about that experience of going yeah. to Budapest was the friendliness and collegiality of your yeah. fellow students and yeah. teachers. Yeah. What do you think was so unique about that place that gave yeah. you that feeling? Yeah, I think, again, you know, because I stayed there for a couple of years, but the first year was really exceptional because of the group of students that we had and I don't see even like the staff that uh, that are working there they said that our group was kind of exceptional you know mm-hmm. so I think I was like in that nice regard yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so we really bonded you know and uh yeah that was like amazing because these were people like from different countries well mostly European countries like post-social bloc post-soviet countries mm-hmm. And we had like some Americans, some Germans, you know, but they were kind of rarity, you know. Mm. Now this university changed a lot, you know, so they went global. So they're like students from all over the world. But at that time it was like more regional. And uh, yeah, so like just the friendliness, the students and the professors, you know, so basically like there was... Uh, even the situation when we would call, let's say, our dean, you know, he was his name was Joseph Laslovsky, a Hungarian specialist in medieval architecture. And then when we would call him Joseph, he would say Yoshko, you know, which yeah. is kind of <laughs> not just the first yeah. name, you know, which is so different, you know, like my experience, let's say, with German academia, when you call somebody for just the first name, you know, like people kind of shrink, mm. you know, like, you know, they feel very uncomfortable with yeah, that, you know. It's so, it's like too personal yeah, too yeah you know yeah. so like you do have to say all the titles yeah. you know like whatever yeah. yeah so and the atmosphere you know the relationships you know like everything was so cool and we also had trips like academic academic trips uh, the first one was uh, the beginning of the year and we traveled in uh, to some place like some region in Hungary and then we had like a spring academic tr- uh, field trip and I think the first year we went to Transylvania, you know, in Romania, like mm. the region, and we had to do the presentations and you basically spent one week uh, touring with uh, on a bus, you know, to very remote places. And again, like it creates community, you mm. know, you, you live together, you share, yeah, yeah, which is amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I, I do have like some of the fondest memories of that time. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And have you maintained those connections still? Uh, some of them, some yes. Of them. You know, like one of my yes. best friends, she lives now, she's in um, Lithuania in Vilnius. And yeah, it's been, we did have a rapture, you know, mm. but with the beginning of the war, you know, and everything, yeah. she came back, you know, and 
Yeah, that's like some of my best friends still. Yeah, you know, that's so. amazing that you managed yeah. to hold on to those connections. Yeah. They're very valuable. Yeah. And how did you find, because obviously that was a very uh, kind of intense and new experience for you in terms of personal growth and also yeah. academic yeah. and professional growth. How, how do you balance those two things for yourself? Or how did you then and how do you now? You know, like personal and growth academic. and maintenance. <laughs> yeah, you well know, like... Yeah, I, I don't think like I made any special point of doing that at that time. Mm. It's just like it was you just go with the flow, you know, whatever yeah. happens, you know. But like with years, it kind of took its toll on my personal life, you mm. know, because I had to travel to move, you know, places. And it's kind of none of my relationships works, you know, because <laughs> you just move, yeah. you know. And yeah, this is also like I write here. I had a partner you know in, in Germany but of mm. course after a short period of time it's just not working yes. you know so yeah so some people manage to combine I haven't mm. managed so I haven't been successful in that regard but you, you know? have been very <laughs> successful professionally and academically well yeah. yeah so in like in my case I did have to make choices and they were hard choices yeah, yeah some course. people can yeah combine I, I couldn't no yeah. these, I mean so. these choices are difficult yeah. and that also reminds me a little bit of your second pivot point yeah. um on Jim Quick, yep. who is a, as far as I understand, he's a kind of brain coach, podcaster, yep. writer. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm kind of interested as well in how you approach your own brain development and how you've brought the practices <laughs> of Jim Quick maybe into your daily life yeah. if you're that disciplined. Yeah, you know, like, I, I mean, uh, actually I did say that it was like an amazing discovery for me mm. and very inspirational. And it came about the time when the whole world was in the confinement in French like confinement mm -hmm. I suppose like because of COVID you know and of course like people were uh, looking into whatever self-developing guides you know and everything it was like a booming uh, industry you know yeah. and uh, I taught English online and I did something else I think also online. Ah, I did like another master in project management also online you know so mm -hmm. that um, yeah so I somehow it was by accident that I just came across some of his talks and then I looked him up and uh, I, I was like so inspired. I made a lesson, you know, for my <laughs> students, you know, and it was like a hit, you know, especially as younger people, they could really relate to it and uh, it resonated with them. Um, well, it was a little bit different with older people, but uh, for me, it was absolutely fantastic, you know, like some of the things that I heard for me personally, because I was already like kind of, uh, yeah, uh, uh, a little bit disillusioned or discouraged, you know, like, and his inspiration and motivation was behind it. it it's basically never too late to study, to learn, to mm -hmm. change your life, to do things, you know, like, Fully and so on. Yeah. <laughs> and it does come with a brain development, intellectual development, which mm. is or has been always a part, of course, of my life because mm. I've been learning languages, I've been teaching, I've been doing research, mm -hmm. you know, and so on. Uh, but I mean, like, um, there is a lot to unpack about him, you know, and some of his strategies and tools that he uses, they are very ancient. So basically, mm. like some of my medieval or like books on, from the uh, ancient uh, antiquity, you know, like, uh, uh, like, uh, they do speak about this mnemonic techniques and how people were uh, remembering things like by placing them in a place they know very well in a house in a palace and uh, so, so if yeah. you had to summarize yeah. the tips, if you could give me three tips, what would they be? Uh, you know, I didn't go into his techniques, you know, mm. but like some inspirational points. And actually, like, it's not new what he says, but just like the way he brings it all together, you know, something mm. that I think is crucial, you know, and I'm like... Uh, 
I, I, this is what I would tell anybody, including myself. Mm. And this is a quote from Rumi, but he brings it up. Mm. And it's uh, very profound. So, like, basically it goes like, uh, sell your cleverness for bewilderment. Sell your cleverness for bewilderment. For yeah. So if I may what ask you, because yeah, I, if I may ask you, how do you understand it? I taught it to non-native speakers, and of course, mm. like people, I mean, would have to think what is bewilderment, yeah. you know, like so on. But for you, what to does me, it mean? To me, it means uh, approaching things with curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. Don't assume absolutely. that you know something. Yeah. And create space for you to yeah. feel bewildered by something new. Absolutely. And this is something that I think that magic that we lose when we grow up, yeah. isn't it? Like when we are Definitely. kids, you know, like you're curious. Just yeah. naturally about everything. I also but... think in the word the word bewilderment I think is an interesting choice because tied up in there is fear. Yeah. So it's also it's about being curious in a kind of playful way, but sometimes new things are scary. Yeah. And it's also a little bit yeah, about of embracing courage that and, yeah, fear. That, yeah. yeah, absolutely. True. Yeah. That's interesting. So you see, yeah. <laughs> so how so normally does that does that resonate with your students? Yeah. If they're uh, not necessarily with youngest students? I think yes, you mm -hmm. know, but with older, you know, like and also I think it's well, of course like the UK is kind of different, you know, Ukraine is a different cultural setting and something, you know, like but uh, still, there is a lot of emphasis in the um, um, modern education systems, I would say, on knowledge. Mm. You know, you have to learn for exams, you have to know, mm. you know, like uh, remember, you know, and everything, which is a good thing. You know, mm. I don't want to say it's wrong or anything, you know, but we lose that approach of really being curious mm. or why we are doing that, you know, discovering things, yes. you know. And I think it's like essential for me in my life, you know, because when I lose that curiosity, you know, like mm, everything becomes like insipid. Yeah, yeah, you know, like, I fully agree. yeah. And also in research, this is like quintessentially mm. what research is about. You are yeah. curious about some things, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, you have yeah. to challenge yourself. Yes. Yeah. So that was one thing. Like I, I have to think about three. It's, you, you said like three. You know, like. Well, um, I mean, that, that's yeah, quite okay. a big one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> and how do you like? I think that's really something that that will resonate with listeners and you know current students who are going yeah. through their research, both personally and professionally. I think that principle yeah. of curiosity really applies. Do you feel that it's something that you have to work at and remind yourself to? keep chipping away at kind of every every day or regularly or how like how do you ensure that you hold on to that curiosity yeah I think like this is in a way uh, probably it's again like very different individually you know but I do have some elements of my work that just keep me excited and motivated let's mm. say so I'm very excited about languages you know and I'm saying like if I didn't have to work or do anything I would just like keep on learning languages all the mm. time you know or something else you know like that if someone would just pay yeah so that is like this natural uh, ignition that goes on you know so mm. like well not everybody has it but I think that we can discover something like that you know mm. or maybe something we had in childhood or in earlier years you know we abandoned it or we lost it you know so maybe we can rediscover or find something else you know mm. so but yeah it's a kind of a little bit of work you yes. know? <laughs> yeah, no, so. I, yeah I agree yeah. and how do you how do you help nurture that in younger students and remind them that they need to keep doing that yeah, um, I mean, like, uh, I remember uh, when I came back to Ukraine after having lived, like, for 12 years abroad, you know, and I had, like, a, a course of lectures, a module on Byzantine culture, and mm. I started it with a, fire, with a slide on the 
uh, from the show Dolce and Gabbana, you know, mm. because they had like these uh, Byzantine Sicilian mosaics, you mm. know, like on their attires, you know, and then like, of course, you. So basically something that catches the attention of mm. students, you know, maybe you can relate it or adapt it to the modern world, to the modern setting, because yeah. again, like my field is kind of very remote from our reality, you know, mm. <laughs> it's yeah so you do need to bring it into the present and yeah. show the relevance or show like that it still can be valid yeah, yeah. so that, that mm-hmm. makes sense well speaking of this kind of past and present thing I mean that's that's very much what your what your work is about and I like the link that you made between uh, Jim Quick and yeah. your interest in memory yeah. and how you've kind of tied that into your own research on Byzantine legends with the role of the imaginative versus the historical. So can you tell me a little bit more about that distinction? Yeah, so basically it's again, it's a long process, you know, so like you have all these elements or agency that are working and you sometimes don't even notice that something has like had some influence on you but uh, there were like definitely I can identify this memory thing like through different sources and one of them was the book of uh, Mary Carruthers, the Book of Memory, which of course is classics for the medievalists, you know, but it's like an amazing book. And I think actually Jim Quick could learn a lot from that book. I, I'm not sure that mm. he'll, he even knows, you know, about it. And also like in um, the modern world, there is like, I would say, almost obsession with memory, you know, so you mm. see it like in so many different spheres, you know, one of them is, of course, like the trauma. And this is like post the Second World War, you know, and it developed like in the studies of people who went through the war, especially the Holocaust, you know, and everything. But now it's again, like I'm confronted with that in Ukraine, you know, because like people go through the war experience, you know, mm. and it traumatizes them, you know, and the kind of consequences or symptoms will be seen later, you know, so this is uh, in a a real world, you know, that is like a very practical application of how you study memory, how your memory retains uh, uh, traumatic experiences and what to do with that, you know. So, mm. of course, like these fields belong to psychology and neuroscience and all other things. And But this memory is ubiquitous also like in literary studies, in history, in, uh, uh, yeah, uh, you name it, like sociology. And for me, um, there is no, uh, how to say, uh, no single approach that I have been inspired by, but this is the variety of things. And when I deal with my material, and these are legends about the foundation of churches, you mm-hmm. know, and for historians, like hardcore historians, you know. What does the word legend mean to you? How yeah. would you define so, it? So, I mean, like, of course, there are different uh, um, uh, definitions or different understandings. But for me, the cru- crucial distinction is the myth and the legend. So uh, the myth uh, does not involve any, like, um, uh, real figures or uh, real places, you know, so it can be in somewhere on the Mount uh, uh, Olympus, you know, it can Mm. be somewhere else, gods, you know, uh, the origin myths, which um, are very remote, and they are um, uh, basically stories about something that is very uh, unreal. So let's say, let's put it in such terms. Legends, they are based on some events, people, some coordinates that exist in the real life, you know, Mm. but the rest is not what we call the empirical 
uh, facts or the empirical truths mm. or the empirical events as we so can know the, the rest is almost made yeah, up of memory. made up yeah mm. but it's still about the real people real yes. uh, places yeah. you know so it's not about uh, like uh, Zeus on uh, the somewhere yeah. um, on, on the mount and so like and uh, for um, historians like they they would discard these legends on this basis because mm. they are not uh, containing facts and details that are uh, reliable mm -hmm. in in the um, conventional historical yeah. sense, right? Yeah. So, like but, they can't be believed. Yeah, they, they have so some like other whatever the date is off, you know, like right. the names are off, you know, yeah. something. There are angels, there yeah. are miracles, you know. So of course, for historians, well, this is not uh, the historical source, right? Mm -hmm. And. Uh, let's say like one of the recent translations like in the commentary the author would say or the uh, translator would say this is not a historical fact this is not mm. a historical fact this is not and you read like but and that story like let's say the story that i uh, wrote my dissertation about like about the building of Hagia Sophia in mm. Constantinople and i will be talking about it like on the 2nd of march mm. Uh, so that was the most popular story. It has like more than 80 manuscripts in Greek, like uh, uh, Byzantine Greek, modern Greek. You know, it has translations into Latin, uh, medieval, uh, Slavonic, uh, um, Persian, Turkish, you know, and yeah, Georgian. You know, so that was the only text that has been preserved in so many versions mm. and the manuscripts. Mm. And the rest, we have like excerpts about the building, let's say the Church of Historians, you know which exist in one or maybe mm. like a couple of manuscripts, you know. So th this is what people actually wanted to hear. This is mm. what they loved and this is what was welcomed. And that uh, in a way, or not in a way, but realistically uh, reflects their mentality, how they saw the world, how they perceived their past, how they perceived mm. the past of this church, you know. That was their memory, you know. Now mm. we came to differentiate between this historical memory of remembrance and... Uh, imaginative but mm. for them they didn't have this distinction so actually for the readers of those legends they feel like a more accurate representation of their own experiences Absolutely. because they tie yeah. in yeah. imagination yes. feeling which is part yeah. of everyday life yeah so yeah. they couldn't have imagined their past without the intrusion of god yeah. and uh, appearance of angels and mir mm. miraculous events and mm. so on you know it was a part of them is present what, and the past yeah, yeah. is that yeah. what legends mean to you um, why why are they important to you uh, i think i'm just interested in stories mm -hmm. you know so and i think people like stories so nowadays mm -hmm. we replace them with soap operas with mm -hmm. uh, shows with whatever right yeah. at that time they didn't have the tv they didn't have internet so they needed stories yeah, this is true. just a part of human you know nature it's human so, nature yeah. i agree yeah. And this also reminds me of the way, you know, the way that history is taught and it's taught from certain people's perspectives yep. and those perspectives naturally, because they're told from one side, you lose other perspectives yep. and that changes things, doesn't it? Yeah. And also like history as a science, or as we are used to it, it's also re being reevaluated throughout its existence. So like, which is not as historiography, right? So like mm. about writing of history. And nowadays it's very clear, you know, like, so the history or the perception of past is very much uh, perceived through the lens of the present. And besides, so we have our categories, we have mm -hmm. our um, uh, vision of how things are, or which is like, and for us it's natural because this is how we grow up, 
mm. you know, and this is what we've uh, ingested, you know, and so on. But if you kind of separate yourself from uh, these concepts that are uh, widely accepted, we, you can ask, so why do you, I think that this is like this? Or why, you know, like... Mm. I think this is true, this is not true, this is bad, this is not bad, you know, like, this is all, you know, in our kind of mentality, you know, very um, dependent on also, mm, like, where you binary. grew up, you know, yeah, you know, cultures, political, mm. social environment, all effects, and of course, like, our individual experiences, you know, mm. so some people see something or notice something because they have that concept, you know, like, so for me, I'm sorry, it's like from another, you know, field, but uh, I grew up in a country where there are no social classes, you know, or mm. basically we were told, you know, something. I mean, now now there are rich and poor, you know. Yeah. So for me, let's say when I come to the UK, you know, and of course it's not, you know, kind of pronounced, you know, but it's still something that mm. you have to be aware of, you know, mm. because it is in the culture, it is in the society, mm. and I'm actually it blind exists, to yeah. it, you know, mm. because for me, I, I don't have a concept, you know. That's so that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so like I had to discover, you know, these things and kind of educate myself, you know. Mm. To, yeah, so the, the same, you know, like you look into the past, you know, and you you will see something because you are conditioned mm. to see it, you know, and you will miss something there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so how, to, yeah. how has that felt for you culturally, settling into the UK and in Oxford specifically? Um, uh, you know, like I'm a kind of very international and cosmopolitan, you know, so mm. I, I think I function the best in the international environment, mm. you know, and this is the very <laughs> is international. very international environment. <laughs> I've so, never met know. anybody from Oxford. <laughs> yeah. Oxford. <laughs> yeah, you know, so you can barely like hear, I'm sorry to say British English, you know, like because people are from everywhere, you know, yeah. so I cannot say that I'm actually in, kind of initiated, uh, you know, in, yeah. in the British culture. No, yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. Um, and tell me, tell me what your biggest goals are now in life, either professionally or personally. What yeah, you, you know, like I now? honestly, I really kind of dislike all those questions, yeah. especially <laughs> when, you, when you when you you ask, you ask like, well, do you see yourself in five or ten years? I'm like, oh my goodness, my life has been just like, you know, throwing all unimaginable things at mm. me, you know? And no, I, I mean, the, yeah. the question of where will you be in, in five years, I also find a bit yeah. redundant. <laughs> okay. But I, I do think, like, I don't know, maybe... You have aspirations or yeah, you have may, dreams maybe or there's something. maybe a specific yeah, idea. You know? Yeah, you, you know, like, like the idea yeah, of right I think I would like to settle somewhere, you know, because mm. especially now, like, I mean, there is nowhere to return, basically, at least for the foreseeable future, you know. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, so this is like, it's very practical, you know, but it affects like your f functionality as a human being, you know, so that's, yeah, and yeah, I'm, um, uh, you know, like, I would like to develop in the uh, some of the areas that I I've been working in, and this is like, interpretation in particular and I think it's possible to combine because like the um, research is very isolated and I basically don't speak you know so it's mm. just reading writing you know mm -hmm. but I am very as you probably can notice you know like very different kind of person I do need like solitude and you know like uh, uh, concentration and everything you mm. know but I'm actually really lacking you know that social part and I think mm. like uh, I enjoyed interpretation very much I worked with the OSC in Donbass you know mm. like in the conflict area mm -hmm. 
and it was again very challenging very demanding environment but i yeah i like that kind of job so i think mm. yeah i would uh, i uh, actually applied to volunteer to interpret for ukrainian refugees you know was one of the ngos mm-hmm. it's still in the process because they have like a very long procedure you know like of going through yeah so i need to do like a shadowing session but i think it's like one of the ways you know and also like i think this is um part of my life you know and i i want to i mean like it seemed that these are two different spheres but they're not mm. you know because like this is the combination you are still like the um citizen of your country mm. and everything that is going on there you know and even like with the people who are abroad and there are a lot of of course you mm. know ukrainians you know who yeah. don't know the language you know yeah. so in a way it can be uh useful yeah That's so how you said you you're kind of missing community here yeah how how does that feel for you now are you kind of is it difficult to meet people or build a social life um or? i would say so because like first of all my work is uh what i'm supposed to do i'm supposed to do research mm. right that's why i'm here so it's very know? independent <laughs> it's work. very independent yeah. but it just means you just basically yeah. confine yourself to the library right yeah. and do your do your work yeah. you know this is often so, the case with literary <laughs> studies <laughs> yeah. yeah so this is not like you come to the office you have a chat you know like yeah. small talk you know and something it's just just you you know yeah. no I, th- yeah, I think studies the... of of literature and language they kind of lend themselves to people who are naturally quite introverted yeah but at the same time everybody needs community and connection yeah. of some sort right yeah you know i mean i've known some introverts in my life you know but mm-hmm. i think they're very i mean those who can really just stay on you on, on their own you yeah. know but rarely you yeah know? yeah so yeah. then no I, yeah. I agree i can do it for you know kind <laughs> a of while what feels to me like a while but maybe to a real introvert it's not yeah <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Okay, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you.